There is something in us as storytellers and as listeners to stories that demands the redemptive act, that demands that what falls at least be offered the chance to be restored. The reader of today looks for this motion, and rightly so, but what he has forgotten is the cost of it. His sense of evil is diluted or lacking altogether, and so he has forgotten the price of restoration. When he reads a novel, he wants either his sense tormented or his spirits raised. He wants to be transported instantly either to mock damnation or mock innocence. Catholic novelist Flannery O'Connor I have been doing a lot of lecturing in this podcast. Dense programming, giving you lots of information. Episode 99 was that. It's not a bad thing. But what I want for you is to really take in what I'm offering at the level of your bones. To possess it at the felt level. To be that familiar with it. It can't be just head knowledge. I want it to be knowledge throughout all of you, integrated within all of you. So I'm going back to another way of learning, a way of learning I haven't emphasized enough. Now, we've been doing experiential exercises, and I think those are great. And so today, I'm going to tell you a story. Why? Why a story, Dr. Peter, you might ask me? Here's why. In the words of Edward Miller, he says... Stories are our primary tools of learning and teaching, the repositories of our lore and legends. They bring order into our confusing world. End quote. Stories are our primary tools for teaching and learning, and it's true. Think about it. We teach our children in their earliest years through stories and experiences, not through lectures. I am Dr. Peter Malinowski, clinical psychologist, passionate Catholic, co-founder and president of Souls and Hearts at soulsandhearts.com, and I am very pleased to be with you as your host and guide in this Interior Integration for Catholics podcast episode number 101, and I am so happy to be here today to tell you a story. This episode is titled, A Story About Receiving Different Kinds of Love. And this is a story that we can all relate to. So let's get prepared for the story. Let's talk about ways to listen. One way is to just listen to the story, to just take it in. And that's fine. That's good. But I'm going to invite you to another level of listening. And that is listening to yourself as you listen to the story. Noticing what's going on inside of yourself As you take in the story, this means listening to your own parts, connecting with your own parts as you listen to the story. And if it's helpful, you can pause the audio. You can create more of a reflective space to understand more about what you're noticing, what you're resonating with from the story, what is impacting you. 
Maybe even what are you rejecting from the story? So, you can listen to the story. You can listen inside to yourself as you listen to the story. And get in touch with parts. Parts of you as they experience the story. I talk a lot about parts, a lot about internal family systems in episode 71 of this podcast, A New and Better Way of Understanding Myself and Others. Now, another thing to be aware of, to listen for in the story, are the needs. I've been talking about these needs a lot in this podcast in recent episodes and also in the weekly reflections that I write and send out in the weekly emails that are also posted in our archive at soulsandhearts.com backslash blog. These five primary conditions for secure attachment and the five integrity needs. So the five primary conditions for secure attachment are from Brown and Elliott, their book in 2016. Those are one, the felt sense of safety and protection. Two, feeling seen, heard, known, and understood. Three, feeling comforted, soothed, and reassured. Fourth, feeling cherished, treasured, and delighted in. And fifth, feeling that the other, the attachment figure, has your best interests at heart. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand are the integrity needs. These are the need to exist and to survive, the need to matter, the need to have agency, the need to be good, and the need to have mission and purpose in life. So we can listen to the story. You can listen to yourself as you listen to the story, especially your parts. You can listen for the needs that are coming out in the story. And then one more thing to listen for, and this is the resistance to being loved. This is from Interior Integration for Catholics, episode 99. The different ways that we resist real love. These can be limited vision, lack of imagination, not understanding God's love, rejecting the costs of being loved by God, poor God images, poor self images, a refusal to be vulnerable, to be exposed, to be revealed to God, a lack of courage and anger at God. So you can listen for those as well. Now, just a couple of cautions here before we begin the story. I promise you, we are almost about to begin the story. But take what's helpful from the story. The story could be very evocative for some people. Parts of you may really connect in this story in different ways, maybe in surprising ways. And I want you to make sure that you are taking care of you, that you're taking care of your parts in a good and healthy way as you listen to the story. So if it's not helpful to you, shut it down, take a break perfectly welcome to do that. And just to be aware of where you are in your window of tolerance, if you're moving into a fight or flight response, you know, rising up with all kinds of intensity, or if you're dropping into a freeze response, the hypoarousal, that dorsal vagal response, we want to make sure that we're paying attention to that. All right, so Our story begins with our main character, Susanna. And Susanna is a 40-year-old married mother of three, 
brown hair, warm eyes, easy smile. She's the kind of person who laughs at your jokes. The kind of person that you immediately feel comfortable with. Open, engaging with other people. She's well-read. She can talk about your interests, socially adept. And, you know, she she's the one that coordinates making meals for the for the local women who have just had babies. And when you connect with her, you have a sense that she's suffered in her life and that she understands something about suffering. And that was true because life wasn't always easy for Susanna. Susanna grew up in Culpeper, Virginia, 75 miles west of Washington, D.C., the oldest of four children, all girls. And her parents named her Susan. Her mother was quiet, introverted, She was an interior designer turned homemaker. On the other hand, her father, very extroverted, warm, gregarious. He was a high school teacher. He taught algebra, geometry, trigonometry at Culpeper County High School. He had a great sense of humor, really a gratifying guy, pretty easy grader for the students, so the students loved him. And and her father really liked being a popular teacher. Susan had a sense, though, that her father had a favorite, a favorite daughter, and Susan was not that favorite daughter. When Susan was 16 years old, her mother divorced her father. Her mother could no longer take her father's affairs and his excessive drinking. Mother was devastated and really wanted Susan to understand, but Susan was cold and distant and angry. Susan read the divorce decree, irreconcilable differences. That was the reason given for the divorce. And Susan was so angry about what was happening to her family. At an emotional level, Susan repudiated both her mother and her father. She did not understand what was happening and she did not want to understand it. And this was the moment where she decided to go by Susanna instead of Susan. There were three reasons for that. First of all, her parents had introduced her to the Chronicles of Narnia, and she just loved the Chronicles of Narnia. But in the last book of the series, The Last Battle, Aslan says, quote, Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia, end quote. Susan had gotten into nylons and lipstick and party invitations and just seemed like she had drifted away. And our Susan, the Susan in the story, didn't like that at all. Second thing was that Susan was her given name. That's the name that her parents had given her and she wanted a different name, but not too different. She didn't just want to take what her parents had given her, especially with how colossally they had disappointed her with the divorce. And the third reason why Susanna started to go by Susanna instead of her given name Susan was that in the Bible, in Daniel chapter 13, Susanna was the beautiful, faithful wife of Joachim. Susanna refused to be blackmailed into adultery by the two respectable men of high stature in the community, these two judges who also happened to be voyeurs, peeping toms. Susanna preferred death by denunciation, by false accusation, 
rather than compromise her moral principles. And as you may know, Susanna was saved by a young boy, Daniel, whose clever cross-examination of the accusers revealed them to be liars. Susanna was a real heroine in Susan's eyes, someone to be emulated. So she took her name. And then there was the typical thing, shared custody, shuttling back and forth between her parents, who were now drifting from the faith. Mom pursued an annulment, got it, and remarried the summer after Susan's graduation from high school. Susanna refused to be in the bridal party. She refused to go to the wedding. That's how upset she was. And like many teenagers in this position, Susan rebelled. But she didn't rebel using alcohol or drugs or sex. Susan rebelled against her parents by becoming even more committed to the Catholic faith that they were abandoning. She went to Christendom College because it was close and it was Catholic. She determined to make a new life for herself there. She was going to leave her old life behind and she came home to see her parents as little as was possible. When she did come home, she focused on her sisters. Very uncommunicative with mom, very uncommunicative with dad. Christendom is where she met Brett, who eventually became her husband. Brett, mathematics major who got into computer programming, very introverted, not very social, but he wasn't like socially awkward exactly, just not inclined to parties and large groups. He worked in computer programming as an independent contractor and made an excellent income. He was really into fantasy role-playing games. And they had, over the years, three children. 16-year-old Savannah, the oldest, now driving, now asserting her independence. 13-year-old Trevor, who was the athlete, mechanically talented, who liked woodworking. And 10-year-old Micah, who was still really cute and cuddly with mom, starting to play volleyball, very into playdates still with her friends. Susanna had been a freelance writer, mostly for Catholic publications. She had a small but dedicated following, and she made a little money for the family doing that. Her pastor at the big mega parish in their suburb said, Hey, would you be willing to become the assistant for ministry outreach? It's a part-time position. Kind of make it what you will. Ray De La Cruz, he's the director of ministry outreach. He needs an assistant, just 10 to 15 hours per week, lots of writing, some event planning, some event management. You know, we'd love to have you on board. Consider it. You'd have an office at the parish. You'd be right next to the grade school, close to your two youngest kids. And you know what? He's saying, I think it's going to be a fit for your charisms. Susanna's thinking about it, but she's got a comfortable life. She decides, eh, I don't really like to do it, you know. But Brett... Her husband is starting to have some heart problems. He's had high blood pressure for years, stress of hitting deadlines for his consulting work, his programming work. He's not doing that well. Strange bodily symptoms, heart racing. It's hard to find any biological causes in the medical investigation. Sometimes he's off work for a week at a time. So the income from Brett's just not that stable. Maybe it would be nice to have a little bit more income because there's some gnawing anxiety that Suzanne is experiencing about that. Brett's father and his grandfather, they both died young from heart problems, and she wasn't confident that she could handle the family finances if he died or became incapacitated. So 
there had also been some increased conflict at home, especially between Trevor and Brent, and she needed some more human contact. She was getting pretty lonely with her writing. Brett, again, not very good company right now, kind of irritable, kind of sad, and and maybe maybe she did have something to offer to the parish. You know, the kids are more independent now. They're very busy. She'll be connected to them at school. Maybe this is a time. She met Ray, who is the director of ministry outreach, really a dynamic guy, lots of positive energy. He was brought in six months ago to revitalize the ministry outreach, and he was finding ways to really reach people, helping them to become more alive in the faith. He had started all these initiatives across different demographics of the parish, but he just needed a little bit more help to get things done. Susanna didn't know him very well, but from her vantage point, she did appreciate how he motivated people, how he stayed on his message of getting people to pray, to spend time with the Lord. The Eucharistic Adoration Chapel at the parish had been pretty moribund before before Ray showed up, but now it was lively, and teenagers from the youth group were regularly taking hours in front of our Lord. Even her daughter Savannah had gotten into that. Ray was direct, straight-talking, and he had just come from some significant success as an assistant VP in a mid-sized marketing firm, but he was looking for more meaning and purpose in his life. He was 38. He had spent a few years in the diocesan seminary, discerned out of that, had never married, but he was doing an amazing outreach with the Latino community in the parish as well. In the initial interview with Ray about the positions, Susanna felt uplifted and supported. She sensed that Ray was interested in her life, interested in her background, and he discussed how he really wanted to craft this position around the person, around her, capitalizing on her strengths and gifts and charisms, not trying to fit her into some procrustean bed of a rigid position description. And he really wanted to make sure that the position, if she took it, fostered her spiritual life. He said, We have a startup spirit here. It's not your same old parish corporate Catholicism. And he was laughing as he said it. He was a fan of Dynamic Catholic and Matthew Kelly had his books handy. Four Signs of a Dynamic Catholic was his favorite book, he told her. So much in there, you and I, that we can put in practice here at the parish. Let me think about it. Let me think about it. Give me a couple of weeks she said to him. And Ray said in reply, okay, Susanna, take all the time you need. I'll be praying for you. Just don't forget about me, okay? Get back in touch when you're ready. Susanna was thinking, if I'm going to step back out into the world, I would want my job to support my spiritual life, to foster my prayer life, to help me towards holiness. I would want someone in my corner, Susanna thought, someone who really had my back, someone who would advocate for me, someone who understood me. I just feel like I need that. If I start working outside our home again, I would want a supervisor who actually cares about me as a person, not just what I can do for them. And then with a little twinge, a feeling she couldn't quite identify, the next thought came. Someone like Ray, she corrected herself. Someone like Mr. De La Cruz. Ten days later, she came back to the parish office and met Ray and Father Brownlee in Ray's office and said, I'm in, but here's the caveat. I want to try it for 90 days, see how it goes. Family life, see how this sits with Brett. It's been a long while since I've been working in the world. All right, all right, said Ray, his face lighting up. Let's do this. And no worries, Susanna, the parish isn't the world. You'll be working in the church, not the world. 
Father Brownlee shook her hand and smiled. He said, have Martha onboard you with all the employment paperwork. She'll walk you through all that tedium. I'm going to let you and Ray figure out the details about how to work together. I trust you both. I have to go. Financial reports for the, for the archdiocese are waiting. You know how to reach me if you need something. God bless. Susanna, let's, let's start with prayer, said Ray. And without waiting for her to answer, he prayed out loud, thanking God for the parish, for Father Brownlee, for the outreach work, the work of evangelization, for the beauty of the day, and for Susanna joining the staff, bringing all her gifts and talents and her whole being to the team. Then he made the sign of the cross. After that, he said, all right, let's shake on the deal. And he held out his hand and she shook it. And she felt a ripple of electricity surging up her arm as he gave her a quick squeeze before releasing her hand. She felt excited. Was she, was she really happy? She hadn't sensed such an uplift in a long time. I must have gotten older than my years somehow, she thought to herself. And she smiled warmly at Ray and he laughed again and asked, what's your schedule for today? The next six months seemed like a whirlwind to Susanna. She absolutely embraced the parish work. Her confidence rose week by week. Ray was just somehow able to find the right growing edges from her to really stretch her, but to not overwhelm her. They read passages from Matthew Kelly's book, The Dream Manager, and brainstormed together about her professional development. Susanna did most of the planning for the eighth grade retreat, and her son Trevor said that all of his friends at school thought it was the best retreat ever. Susanna also connected with Martha, the parish administrative assistant and Sharon, the school principal, who took an interest in her and appreciated her eating lunch with the students, including Trevor and Micah on occasion. And Susanna made a lot of mistakes. There was a steep learning curve for her. Ray just laughed them off with one or more of his inexhaustible supply of quotes. There was one example, the 8th grade graduation supper, where Susanna caused a pretty significant commotion with a caterer. Susanna had made several errors in placing the catering order and then alienated the caterer in her frantic attempts to force everything to work out. Multiple different entrees had to be prepared in an emergency, the food quality suffered, and worst of all, Trevor's classmates knew that Susanna was responsible for the supper. The caterer complained about Susanna to the pastor and the auxiliary bishop. Susanna felt terrible, ashamed, and guilty, but Ray wasn't phased by it at all. He just quoted the business magnate Richard Branson who said, quote, you don't learn to walk by following rules. You learn by doing and by falling over, end quote. And that was so refreshing for Susanna who ever since her parents' divorce had been so focused on not making mistakes. She began to realize that she saw her parents' divorce as the huge mistake, the kind of mistake that she never wanted to make. And the best way to avoid making such a huge mistake was to make no mistakes at all. She began to feel more free, like the world was just getting a little more spacious. At Ray's insistence, Susanna had dispensed with calling him Mr. De La Cruz after their first meeting. My name's Raimundo, but you can just call me Ray. Everyone does. And everyone did, even the school kids in the youth of the parish. 
And Ray seemed to have this unbounded energy, no end of creative ideas. He took prayer seriously. Early in the morning, Susanna would see him in the Adoration Chapel. He invited her to pray with him before they met to discern and discuss plans. He would inquire about her prayer life and let her know that he was continuing to pray for her that she become a saint. He asked her to pray for him, and amazing things were happening in the parish. Ray was a dynamic, motivational speaker, especially for the teenagers and the young adults, and he also had this way of connecting with the men of the parish. He had a remarkable ability to remember names. Susanna found herself just admiring him. She grew more and more curious about him and what made him tick. Where did he get all the energy and enthusiasm? He never seemed to have a bad day. He had the full support of the parish, and he had a lot of autonomy in designing and carrying out his plans. Her daughters noticed that, that Susanna was happier and busier. Her husband, Brett, seemed to be noncommittal about her working at the parish, but he was still in his funk, and Susanna began to wonder if he might be depressed. It was hard to know. It's so hard to reach Brett in so many ways. But her own prayer life was growing. The challenges she was facing encouraged her to pray, because now she had two teenagers with their trials and their hormones to deal with. Trevor, now in high school, would occasionally ask, How's it going for you, Mom, at work? How's Ray? Susanna felt herself a bit tongue-tied in trying to explain what it was like to work at the parish to Trevor. Susanna also experienced some confusion and a vague sense of guilt about her marriage. She struggled with how to love Brett, who so needed space and whose love languages seemed so different from hers. He seemed even more uncomfortable with touch than he had in years past, and with any physical affection unless he had been drinking. She had a sense that he didn't fully approve of her working at the parish, but he would not come out and say what he thought. He was just so indirect. Why could that man not support her in something that she found so much joy and purpose and meaning in? That troubled her. Very gradually, over time, Ray became even more casual and familiar in his conversations with Susanna. Sometimes he would call her Susanita and playfully refer to Susanna as his guiding star when she had a particularly creative idea. He had an amazing vocabulary in multiple languages. Once in a while, when he was in a particularly warm mood, he would refer to her with terms of affection from other languages. Querida, cara, cariño, mon chéri. She asked him about that. She was curious about that. He responded with a big smile and with his arms open wide, said, I'm from Puerto Vallarta in Alisco. We talk like that there. These are just ways of expressing friendship and connection. And I consider you more than just my assistant. I think we are spiritual friends, Susanna. At least I hope we are. Like St. Francis de Sales and St. Jane de Chantal. But hey, hey, if it bothers you, I won't use those words. I can just call you Susanna. No problem. No, no, it's okay. I kind of like it. Great, said Ray. Susanna, I just want to be a ray of sunshine in your life. And he laughed heartily at his own play on words. But those words stayed with Susanna and echoed in her memory. A ray of sunshine in my life. Three weeks after that, at the end of the day, Susanna stopped by Ray's office to drop off a file and saw him head down in his chair, shaking. Ray? Ray, are you all right? 
He took his hands from his face, his eyes streaming with silent tears. No, I'm not all right. I'm very not right. Susanna immediately pulled up a chair next to his, and instinctively she reached out to take his right hand in both of hers. Ray, it's okay. Ray, what is it? Ray's breathing was labored and his body shuddered. I'm glad you're here. I am so glad you're here. Just stay with me for a while, Susanna. And with his free hand, he wiped tears from his eyes and looked at her. Ray, what's wrong? Ray broke off eye contact and looked over her head at the wall. I can't tell you what's wrong, Susanna. I can't. And then he said, I'm so alone. I'm so lonely. He looked at her again. I can't tell you how lonesome I am. He looked down at their hands joined together. Do you know it's been four days since anyone has touched me? And he sobbed silently, rocking back and forth in his chair, looking so wounded, so broken, looking like a little lost, abandoned boy. Susanna's heart was so full of emotion, and she was acting now on impulse. She disengaged her right hand and put her arm around his shoulders, holding him with just enough pressure to slow his rocking down. Look at me, she said to him. He looked into her eyes. She said, You are my ray of sunshine. Remember that. Then fear flooded through her. And she ran out to her car without her coat or purse in a dark and cold mid-December mist. Her mind was reeling, and she tried to recollect herself in the driver's seat. What, what had just happened? What, what was going on? She turned the key and the car started. I need some music, she said, and she turned on the radio. Savannah had tuned in last to an 80s station, and the DJ was saying, Up next, Dan Fogelberg's top 10 hit from 1981, Same Auld Lang Syne. And Dan's voice came over the radio. Met my old lover in the grocery store. The snow was falling Christmas Eve. I stood behind her in the frozen foods, and I touched her on the sleeve. And then, then Susanna's tears flowed. From deep within her, a very, very young voice was crying out over and over again. I want to go home. I want to go home. And Dan sang on. Two minutes later, the lyrics pierced her like a spear when Dan was singing... She said she'd married her an architect who kept her warm and safe and dry. She would have liked to say she loved the man, but she didn't like to lie. Susanna clawed the driver's door open, leaned over, and threw up on the asphalt. She shut the radio off in the middle of the saxophone solo, slammed the transmission into reverse, and spun her tires on the wet pavement backing out of there, away from the parish, away from Ray, away from anywhere, just to get away. I love Brett, Susanna insisted to herself as she drove. I love my husband. I do. I am faithful to him. I love my husband. 
But another voice, low and soft, almost gentle, said, Yes, yes, you do. But are you sure Brett is your husband? Of course Brett is my husband. We're married. We were married on October 10th. We made vows to each other. Yes, you did. You did. You made a vow. And Brett said the words too. Maybe Brett made a vow if he was actually capable of making a vow. Maybe. But you know that Brett is on the spectrum, don't you? What's the term? Functioning autistic? He has been since he was little. Come, come now listen to me. How often does he look at you? How well does he understand you really? How well does he connect with you emotionally, relationally? What about how he shrinks from your touch so often? How he is so, so introverted. How he lives so much in a fantasy world, his role-playing games with anonymous gamers from all over the world. Let's, let's be honest, Susanna about Brett. It's about time. And let's be honest about you too. Why you wanted him for a husband. Did you want to love him out of charity? Really? And how has that been going? You loving him? Isn't it true that what you really wanted was your own safety, security, his income. And isn't it true that you so desperately wanted not to depend on either of your parents, but you weren't ready to stand on your own two feet? Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Susanna was saying, Susanna, Susanna, don't you know that you actually love Ray? Are you that blind, Susanna? Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Susanna, didn't you just prove that you loved Ray? Holding hands with him, your arm around him, your ray of sunshine. Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! I'm going crazy, Susanna thought. I'm going around the bend. Could it actually be? That Brett was too impaired to marry me? Could there be any truth to that? She remembered several Catholic friends and acquaintances who, after their civil divorces, had applied for declarations of nullity for their marriage, like her parents, from the Archdiocesan Tribunal, and all of them were granted. That was a long evening back at home. Susanna had told the kids and Brett that she wasn't feeling well. She skipped supper and went to bed. She lied there awake in the darkness and the chaos of her thoughts. The next morning, she was supposed to meet with Father Brownlee and Ray at 9 o'clock. She considered calling in sick, but she knew she'd have to face Ray again at some point. 
So she arrived at the conference room exactly at nine. She didn't want to be late, but she didn't want to be early. Ray was there, looking like his old self. He told her that Father Brownlee was running a little late. Hey, Susanna, about yesterday. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry about being such a hot mess. I'm not usually like that. I know I probably made you uncomfortable. Susanna found herself saying, No, Ray, it's okay. Really, I was glad to help. And taking in a smile. Thank you, Susanita, thank you. We're okay? Yes, Ray, we're okay. Okay. I just want to thank you, Susanna, for all that you did for me. You can't possibly know how much you helped me. You were a gift from God. No, really, a gift. I thank God for you. You were so attuned to just what I needed in that moment. Can I, can I give you a little hug just to thank you, my spiritual friend, my sister in Christ? I mean, it's hard for me to express everything that's in my heart for you just in words alone. And Susanna, speechless, gave the slightest of nods before being enfolded in Ray's arms. Her body felt electrified as he held her. She felt his body warm and firm and strong against hers. He was smiling down at her just for those three seconds. And she felt the ache of longing as he let her go, saying, Thank you, Mon Chiri. Please don't tell anybody about how you found me yesterday. Let's just keep that between us. I'm still embarrassed by my weakness and vulnerability. And at that moment, before she could respond, Father Brownlee's steps sounded in the corridor, and they separated quickly as they heard his customary hearty greeting, his Pax Fomiscum, preceding him from the hallway. They sat around the table and started with the business items of the day. But after that, their hugs became more frequent, longer. They prayed together in the chapel. Sometimes they furtively held hands with God's approval, Ray said, because God's beloved children, siblings in the Lord, would hold hands. The siblings that loved each other would hold hands, Ray said. But they did hide it because, Ray said, others wouldn't understand the relationship. And they were having lunch in the break room of the parish center. It's interesting because Susanna was not eating lunch in the school cafeteria. But in the break room, Susanna asked Ray what he had been crying about that afternoon. Was he ready to tell her? Did he feel up to talking about it? Ray said that he was grieving then. Grieving what? Grieving for himself, grieving for his situation. Susanna, did you ever see the musical Man of La Mancha when Don Quixote sang the song Impossible Dream? No. Susanna wasn't familiar with the song. They were alone, so in a low voice, Ray sang the first few lines for her. To dream the impossible dream. To fight the unbeatable foe. To bear with unbearable sorrow. To run where the brave dare not go. To right the unrightable wrong. 
to love pure and chaste from afar. And that's where he choked up again. That's why I was grieving, he said. I was grieving you. That all I could do in my love for you, all I could do was to love you, pure and chaste from afar. We were never going to be close in the way that I wanted, Monshiri, in the way that I hoped you wanted. It was just going to be frustration and pain and sacrifices and sufferings. But you, you, Susanna, you showed me another way. In my dark hour of despair, you reached out, you touched me, you took my hand, you made it all right. You had the presence. You were able to find a way that I could not see for us to be together, for us to love one another in a way that was right and good. And so now, it's out there, Susanna Richards. I, Raimundo de la Cruz, your ray of sunshine, I tell you now, I love you. I will always love you. Whether you love me or not, I will always love you. Like in Wendell Berry's novel, Jaber Crow, how Jaber loved Maddie Chatham in the way that he did, pure and chaste from afar, because Maddie was already married to Troy. Jaber was more faithful and true to Maddie than Troy ever was. And Ray leaned back, held out his arms wide, and said, I love you this big much, Monshuri. And he laughed. You don't have to say anything, Susanita. I know it's all right. I know this is a lot to take in. I'm okay with whatever you decide. I've decided for me. I've sorted it out on my end. I'm at peace. I've made my commitment. I will devote my life to you in love, in whatever way you permit, in whatever way you allow. I am all yours to take or to leave. You are my Dulcinea, my querida. And like a moth to the flame, Susanna was drawn in deeper and deeper. At the time, her increasing enmeshment with Ray felt inexorable, but later, in the clarity of retrospect, she knew it wasn't. She stilled the quiet voice of her conscience. And eventually, they had sex on a wrestling mat in a storeroom by the school gym. So much shifted in both of them after that. For a few weeks after that, they tried to, quote, make the relationship work, end quote. It didn't work. And two months after his initial conquest of her, Ray's, quote, eternal love, end quote, fizzled out. His idealized Dulcinea image of her faded, and he moved on, decided to leave the ministry position at the parish, and he moved to another state. Suzanne also quit her job and entered into a deep depression filled with shame and guilt. Brett and the kids were worried they'd never seen her like this. Who, who am I? She kept saying to herself, who am I? She had driven downtown that Saturday afternoon, parked in the parking garage and was walking to the Catholic bookstore to find a confirmation gift for her niece 
as she struggled with her identity. You know what you are, said the soft, silky voice. You already know what you are. An adulterer. A whore. You are Susan, not Susanna. Susanna was the one who resisted seduction, the one who was willing to die rather than enter into adultery. Don't you remember? You are not her. Then came the hardest cut of all from the soft voice. You are just like your father. You should die. Death will bring you release. Susan, do you know that? What do you have to live for now to be the adulterous wife of Brett who you don't love and who doesn't want you? To be the whore mother of your children infecting them with your vice? Can't you be humble enough even now, Susan, to know that they are better off without you? End it all now, Susan. It would be so easy. There's nothing to it. Just step out into the traffic. It'll be over in a heartbeat. At that exact same time on a Saturday afternoon in the little coastal town of Barra Grande, halfway between Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo in southeastern Brazil, a 10-year-old girl felt an inspiration to pray for whoever might be in most, in most need right now. Maybe a lady who was really sad, a lady who needed help. And her prayer went up to heaven like incense. And Susanna did not throw herself into the traffic on that busy street, but made it to the Catholic bookstore, looking a little disheveled. The cashier noticed her as she came in and gave a faint smile and a half-hearted greeting. She thought the lady did not look well, but at least she clearly was not one of the homeless people that had been so inconvenient lately. In her numbness and distress, dwelling on who am I, Susanna noticed she was thirsty. Weird to notice that right now, but it made sense. She hadn't had anything to eat or drink all day. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters anymore. She walked up through the aisle of books on prayer, and a slim green volume caught her eye, thirsting for prayer, Father Jacques Philippe. She reaches, takes it off the shelf, opens it up, and on page 20 she reads, quote, Over and above our sins and failings, we discover that we are God's children. God loves us as we are, with an absolutely unconditional love, and it is this love that gives us our deepest identity. End quote. Something shifted within her. She flipped to page 22 and read, It is a deep aspiration of every man, and still more every woman, to feel uniquely loved. Not loved in a general way, as one of a large group, 
but appreciated in our uniqueness. This is what the Father's love brings about. Each of us can experience that in his eyes we are loved, chosen by God, in an extremely personal way. We often have the feeling that God loves us in a general way. He loves all men. I'm one of them, so he must take a bit of interest in me. But being loved in a global way, as one item in the collection, cannot satisfy us. And then she shifted to page 23. Each of us has every right to say, God loves me as he loves nobody else in the world. God does not love two people in the same way because it is actually his love that creates our personality, a different personality for each. And then, for the first time in many weeks, the sobs came, racking, heaving sobs. This is who I am. This is who I am, a beloved daughter of God. The cashier heaved herself out of her chair and peered into the aisle. Ma'am, are you okay? But she received no answer from Susanna. The cashier shrugged and went back to her chair to work on her Sudoku puzzle. Store manager came over and asked the cashier in a low voice what was going on. She replied sardonically that he had a major cleanup to tend to in aisle four. Then Susanna was up on her feet and moving fast to the door. She stopped momentarily to ask the manager and the cashier, Is there a Catholic church nearby? Yes, there's one two blocks north. Just go right, out of the door, turn right, straight up. You can't miss it. Mass in 50 minutes. Thank you. Thank you, said Susanna, and she hurried out. Ah, do you want to pay for the book? Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm a bit beside myself, she explained. And she threw a $20 bill on the counter and hustled out. At St. Patrick's Parish, the new pastor, Father Jennings, was eyeing James, the volunteer guitar player and song leader for the 5 o'clock p.m. Mass. James, who he had inherited with the parish in the, re- in the reassignment two weeks ago. James was in his mid-sixties with a gray ponytail, limited musical talent, and an overweening penchant for Marty Hoggin tunes, the very ones that Father Jennings most despised. What James lacked in accurate pitch, he made up for with increased volume. And James had not followed through on the music that they had agreed on for last week's Mass, substituting songs that seemed to him better to sing in the moment, led by the Spirit, you know, the ones that the congregation was familiar with and loved, much better than the dry hymns this new pup of a pastor wanted. Father Jennings told himself to remember that James was also a beloved son of God as he moved in for a confrontation. But at that moment, a woman burst into the church. Father, Father, will you hear my confession? Yes, I would be glad to. And truth be told, Father Jennings appreciated a reprieve from the messy business of dealing with James. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been six months or so since my last confession. And then it all poured out. Twelve and a half minutes of heart-rending sin and sorrow as Susanna's mascara completed its journey to her chin, borne by tears of both sorrow and joy. Her hatred for her parents, her pride, the adultery with Ray, it all came out. And as the priest gave the absolution... 
the Magdalene smiled. Susanna left the confessional with three things. First, a huge sense of relief. Second, a strong sense of mission. And third, a business card for a Catholic counselor in the city. Father Jennings strongly recommended that she see this counselor, this particular counselor, Sandra, because he both knew her and trusted her. He had referred to her before, had heard great reports back. With the suicidal crisis over for now, a whole set of questions emerged for Susanna. How should she tell Brett about Ray? Should she tell him at all? The priest had stressed the point that so much of her struggle now was actually in the natural realm, not just the spiritual realm, but also in the natural realm, in her history, in her upbringing, all that needed to be addressed in the natural realm. She needed some professional help. Susanna looked Sandra up. Sandra looked young, really young. And she found another one, a Dr. Waldron, a psychologist in his late 60s, nearing retirement, but with lots of experience. She started therapy with him and it didn't go well. She felt blamed and judged by this man who seemed more interested in catechizing her than in listening to her. It lasted two sessions and she fired him. Then she connected with Sandra and entered into some really deep therapy work. She learned that everyone has parts, constellations of feelings and thoughts and desires, and that sometimes parts blend with us. She began to connect with her managers a good girl part who always wanted to do the right thing, who never wanted to make mistakes, who was so invested in not being dad. This part grew exhausted and hopeless as she became more and more enmeshed with Ray. She also discovered an an inner critic who tries to help her by riding her and cutting her down in the hopes that that will motivate her to change so that she can become good enough to be loved by a God who seemed so far away to that part. She also discovered a stuff-it-down manager who repressed other parts out of a deep fear that they would overwhelm her and take her over. She also discovered a keep-it-safe-avoiding part that steers clear of potential trouble, works to minimize the risk of being negatively evaluated by others, a part that really wants to be gratifying to other people, to be liked. Over time, she was able to connect with exiled parts within her, a part that so wanted to be loved by her father, who so missed her father. She realized that this part's impulses and desires were fueling so much of her interactions with Ray because this part saw so much of her father in Ray. This part believed that if she were to win Ray's love, it would fill her father's needs. Another exile felt so much shame about not being able to keep her parents' marriage from falling apart no matter how hard she worked. This part felt responsible for their divorce. Her good girl part and her inner critic were both focused on silencing this part. This part just wanted to be able to go home and to be loved by mom and dad. And she also discovered a part that was filled with rage at both her mother and her father 
and who hated God for allowing her to have those parents. She also discovered parts of herself that hated her husband and parts of her that were actually fond of him. It was a revelation to her that both could be true at the same time, that she could feel multiple ways and multiple parts. And as her parts gave her space, she was able to discover her innermost self. Her innermost self was able to emerge and begin over time to lead and guide her system more and more, her innermost self with those beautiful qualities. And as she became more integrated, she began to understand herself so much more clearly, so much more came into focus. She realized that when she was tempted by the devil, the devil was trying to co-opt her most alienated parts, the parts who were the most susceptible to his influence because they were so removed from the rest of her. If those parts influenced by the devil could take over and drive her bus, great harm would result. It was painful work. She felt in her bones, deep in her bones, what Father Jacques Philippe said on page 19 of the book, quote, the negative aspect has to do with our sin, our deep-seated wretchedness. We only know these things truthfully in the light of God. Face to face with him, there is no longer any possible room for lies, no evasion, no excuse, no mask. We are compelled to recognize who we are with our wounds, our weaknesses, our inconsistencies, selfishness, hard-heartedness, secret complicity with evil, and all the rest. End quote. But with that work also came a sense of peace and joy, a sense of being loved by God and Mary in all of her parts, a realization that all her parts were good, and in knowing that her parents did not have to love her any more than they did for her to be okay. God the Father and Mary her mother are her primary parents. And Susanna was able to get in touch with the ministry life-giving wounds to work through the impact of her parents' divorce. She went to a retreat. She joined a local chapter that had a huge impact. And that was so helpful to her as well. She began to relate with God and Mary in a completely different way. And her good girl part realized I don't have to give up Catholicism. I just have to give up my flawed understanding of Catholicism. Susanna feared that Brett would be devastated when she told him about the, the affair, but actually he seemed more relieved. Trevor had told Brett that he thought Mom and Ray had been having an affair. Trevor had heard rumors and seen some interactions that made him suspicious. That was a blow to Susanna that the affair was not nearly so secret as she had imagined. Brett and Susanna were able to find a marital therapist to begin to work on their marriage in a more focused way, and that was not easy. 
There were real limitations and many things to explore, but they made progress, steady progress. And maybe the clearest sign two years later to Susanna that she was in an entirely different place was when she was knocking on the door of her childhood home in Culpeper. Her father answered, surprised to see her. It's good to see you. Will you come in? And she smiled at him and said, Dad, it's good to see you too. And for the first time in more than a quarter century, she meant it. The end. That's the end of the story. Just take a minute to notice what's happening inside. What's up? What are you aware of? What did you learn? If it's helpful to you to write down things in a journal, let Hearts have a voice, speak for them, to allow them to be spoken for. That'd be great. You're certainly welcome to listen to the story again. And feedback is welcome. I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts about what this was like as far as learning something about what we're trying to understand about human formation here in the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast. If you would like, you can certainly send me your own story. You can email it to me at crisisatsoulsandhearts.com. Our last podcast episode, episode 100, that was one that we recorded live. It was a great success in, in spite of some real technical failures that we had. We have a learning curve with our technology, and we know that some of you were not able to join us, and I apologize for that. I think we've resolved those issues, and we will be meeting again live on Wednesday, December 14th from 8 o'clock p.m. to 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time to record another experiential exercise. This one is on parts getting the love that they need. You do need to register, so you can get the link from our weekly reflections that you're getting in your email box if you've signed up for those from us, or you can go to soulsandhearts.com backslash blog and look at one of the recent weekly, weekly reflections and get the link off of those. I'm going to invite you to imagine how Susanna's experience would have been different if she had known about parts, if she had known about her own parts before encountering Ray or before marrying Brett. The Resilient Catholics community is all about our parts. It's all about interior integration and it's about doing it together. We have 120 Catholics like you already on board, already on the pilgrimage. We reopened the community on December 1st for our new cohort, the St. Dymphna cohort, and we will be taking applications until December 31st. I'm really going to encourage you to check that out. We had such a great meeting on December 1st. 
that was an informational meeting. We're, we're going to get that posted on our website. Hopefully by the time this is released, it might take us a little bit longer. But I've brought together the best of human formation stuff, all of the things that I have access to that are not therapy, because we don't do any therapy in the RCC or in Souls and Hearts. We don't do any counseling. But there are still so many different things that can be helpful. I bring them together in a structured way in the in the Resilient Catholics community. Again, I encourage you to check that out. I encourage you to discern whether it might be a good fit for you. If you have questions about that, you're welcome to contact me, crisis at soulsandhearts.com, or to call me, 317-567-9594, especially during my conversation hours every Tuesday and Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And so with that, I will say adieu for now. We'll invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother Untire of Knots. Pray for us, St. John the Baptist. Pray for us. <laughs>